0: Monday night, and that means a brand new episode of Graphic Policy Radio, this show that mixes comics and politics, and the show for folks that understand diversity isn't just a press release. Uh, I'm your host Brett, and joining me as always is Alana. How you doing?
1: I'm excited. I uh, have been looking forward to having our guest on for a while. I know you have as well.
0: Yes. Yes, uh, let's just kind of dive right into that. So uh, this is a person who I was just saying that uh, is one of the few people in comics who I'll read everything he has to say uh, just because I, I want to hear it. Uh, it's always thought-provoking. Uh, Joe Illidge is a public speaker on subjects of race, comics, and corporate politics uh, of diversity. Um, he's been featured all over the place, New York Times, CNN, Money, BBC, Publishers Weekly, spoken in tons of different uh, locations if you can catch him. Uh, definitely do it. He is the head of uh, writer for Verge Entertainment, his graphic novel project, The Wren, about the romance between a young musician from the South and a Harlem-born da- dancer in 1925, set against the backdrop of A Crime War, will be published by First Second um, is this year. it coming out? Yes? No? Me No,
2: I'm not. I'm thinking this. I'm thinking next year.
0: Next, next year. year.
2: Okay. When I'm done with my part, the script is done.
1: Hallelujah. <laughs> The I second draft.
0: Done. I, have, I have not seen uh, First Second hit me up on that one. Uh, but we're also going to discuss uh, a comic that will be coming out much sooner than that, Solar Man, which is coming out from Scout Comics in a few months, and you can go and pre-order that now. And uh, I've read the first issue, and you should go do that. So welcome to the show, Joe. Uh, we really, really appreciate you having
2: Thanks very much. Um, I'm really just honored to be here and looking forward to talking with you all. I heard some of your interviews you did a really kind of just laid back interview with the blurred girl and I was like wow that interview just sounds like people just like sitting on comfortable couches
1: and talking <laughs> and I was
2: like I, I dig that I want to sit on a couch so I'm ready Aww. for it
0: cool well that's what we kind of like it's uh you know that's part of the reason that we started all this is so we can have those conversations and with people that we find interesting and uh t- talk geeky stuff Um, along with the serious stuff. Um, So you've had this long career, uh, really, really impressive, um, you know, early in comics. And I'd love for folks, and this is one of the questions we always start off with, is for you you to talk people through your career, uh, how you got started, how you got into comics, and go from there.
2: Okay. Um, My interest in comics started ever since I was in the second grade, and every Friday my mom would take me to the newsstand and she would buy soap opera magazines and she would buy me comic books. So I was a major DC Comics head. Um, Legion of Superheroes was my favorite comic book at the time. And I've been buying comic books all my life and what happened was in 1993, I saw an ad in a catalog for an internship at a company called Milestone Media and Milestone Media was the first black-owned comic book company to have a publishing deal with an industry giant, which was DC Comics, and I started there right from the bottom, and I went through their internship, and after a few months, they were kind enough to take me under their wing and offer me a part-time job, so I learned from some of the greats, including Dwayne McDuffie, God Rest His Soul, and Dennis Cowan, and... So from there, I went to DC Comics where I was a temp assistant editor and I was working on Green Lantern at the time when Kyle Rayner was a new character and I was working on Tangent and I was working on Chase, which was a great comic book by Dan Curtis Johnson and J.H. Williams III and Mick Gray. And from there, I became a Batman editor and I worked under group editor Denny O'Neill who is a legend and a great guy and one of the most important writers in comics in probably the last 40 years. Mm -hmm. After that, I took a break from comics for a while, and when I came back, I was working as an editor for an independent publisher called Arkea. and they're well-known for Mouse Guard, and while I was there, I was able to help get in play a book called The Many Adventures of Miranda Mercury, which is co-written by or co-created by Brandon Thomas, and it was about a black female space hero. And I'd never seen that in comics. In all the years of comics, I'd never seen a black female space hero who came from a family of black space heroes. So I said, we have to get this done. So we did. And um, then after that is when I started writing columns and doing interviews. I was pretty inspired by the work of, Brandon Thomas, who wrote a column called Ambidextrous, and David Brothers, um, who is now at Image. So when Jonah Weiland, the, up until recently, on our comic book resources, came to me and offered me an opportunity to write a column, we talked about it a lot, and we just wanted to make sure that even as a critical think piece, that there was always going to be a sense of hope about it. The ultimate sentiment is not burn down the comic book industry. The ultimate sentiment is let's make the comic book industry better. It can be better. It should be better. So going forward from there, that's basically what I'm doing now with the regular column and the Harlem Renaissance graphic novel, which is in play at first, second, and Solar Man, which is the miniseries that I'm writing now for Scout Comics. The first issue will be coming out June 29th. So that's basically it in a nutshell. Kind of a Big nutshell, but you know, but <laughs> an interesting one. What was, you were mentioning... what
1: was the name of What was the name of the uh, black uh, space science hero? I just wanted to catch um, that.
2: It was called The Many Adventures of Miranda Mercury, and now that Archaea is owned by Boom, Boom is publishing the hardcover collection, which is definitely out. You can find it on Amazon, and it's just the kind of comic that if I had a daughter. I would give her that. I would want her to read that. I would want her to see that. And it's just an all-ages an all ages book. I believe it was voted as one of the top graphic novels for the YALSA Award in 2013. So it was something that
0: really struck me, and I was glad that I was able to get it out there. It's a good one. Uh, that's one I really, really enjoyed. Um Definitely, like when I picked it up, I was like something you don't see every day, and I'm, I wish it got more play when it came out. I mean, you know, it's it's a great property. I hope it uh, there's more done down the road with it because it was just fun. Thank it was you. Really entertaining. Yeah.
2: I think I think you're gonna see more. You know, that's something that Brandon Thomas, the writer, will reveal in time. And <laughs> but I just I just love those characters. I love that world. I love the sense of imagination that it had, I find that a lot of superhero comics these days are devoid mm. of imagination. And mm. so that was refreshing to come across in Miranda Mercury. Just crazy ideas.
0: Yeah, and I would say the other is that so many characters are so depressing now. Everything's grim and gritty and there's just that whack of sense of fun, I think is the best way of putting yeah. it. Like,
2: it's true, yeah. it's true. You know, and I have, you know, if you, if you get a beer in me and you ask me what I think about the DC universe, it's over. Because that's, when you think about, I guess, the quintessential imaginative universe, it is the DC universe. Not necessarily now, but at their core are mad and crazy ideas you know, that require no explanation. You tell me what Adam Strange is, and it's like, okay, I get it. You tell me what Challenges of the Unknown is, and it's like, okay, I get it. You know, take me for a ride. And I hope DC Comics gets back to that again, where they just take us for a ride.
1: Hmm. Well, that's definitely what you seem to be going after in your new series,
2: uh, Solo yeah. Man. Yeah, thank you. You know, I want it to be... Kind of like a balance of a balance of some humor and some seriousness, and that's not necessarily easy to pull off. Um, I think what helped is when Brendan Deneen, the co writer, came to me with it the first issue, he really wanted to do it kind of like in the vein of the classic origin story, like Amazing Fantasy 15 with Peter Parker and stuff like that. So I said, Okay. That's a that's a good structure that we can kick off with as long as we modernize it, as long as we add some edge to it. And we did that. And, you know, just like Brett was talking about, there are a lot of fun comics these days. I really think about um, another person who passed away some years ago, Robert Washington III, who is one of the first round of milestone writers and was well-known for his work on Static. And when I think about a comic book like Static yeah. and how much fun that was. Um, if, I can, if I can get a sliver of that into Solar Man, then then I'm cool.
1: Hmm. I think you both are, a bit, I think Static and then Solar Man are both very much in the vein of the original spirit of Spider-Man. Um, like I, really, I really see that in those characters.
2: Thank you. I appreciate that, because um, number one, Spidey is one of my favorite characters, and two is, you know, Solar Man has this strange history where he was first written by Stan Lee in comics so coming after that you kind of feel like no matter how you revamp him you still want to maintain the beats that are basically you know some of the Marvel Age of Comics beats from the 1960s so that is definitely happening with this character but it's very much going to be modern there are things that are going to be happening to him in particular that will not happen to a lot of people some of which he brings on himself which teenagers do um, and some of which is due to circumstances and social conditions
1: yeah he definitely seems like the character in Starman seems like he's a kid who's like looking to sort of test himself and his boundaries and sort of like hitting his body up against forces until he finds what his limit is
2: yeah he's he's a He's a kid with a chip on his shoulder, and he's pretty pissed off and so he's a hacker, and he uses that as a way to funnel his anger into this righteous thing that he thinks he's doing, which is exposing like sleazy politicians and you know people of influence who are doing shady things, and he's telling himself he's doing that for the right reason. He's not doing that for the right reason. And by the time you get to the end of the first story, we'll find out why he's doing this, why he's angry, why he has a chip on his shoulder, and how that basically propelled the story forward and impacts how he sees people in general and how he sees his enemies.
1: Hmm. That's definitely an interesting angle. Um, You know, one of the things that struck me as someone who lives in New York, and I I learned recently that you live in New York as well, uh, was the story is very much set in East New York, which for folks who don't know is a neighborhood in Brooklyn. Um, And I was sort of wondering how that came to be part of the character's origin story, if that has particular significance to you. It's,
2: you know, it's funny because originally the character was supposed to live in Texas. or Las Vegas. No, not Texas. Las Vegas, he was supposed to live in Las Vegas and I was like, okay, wait a minute if you're talking about a young black man in present time then let's put him in some place where the environment is going to speak to the social drama that's being played out now, and so I was born and raised in Brooklyn and I'm back in Brooklyn now, I live in a Flatbush area, and East New York, so far, seems to be the only neighborhood that has not been totally gentrified or has even been touched by the fingers of Madame Gentrification. And Mm -hmm. so I felt like that was the proper setting to kick this story off because part of his issue, which we'll expand upon, is... He thinks he's too good to live there, and he thinks the people that live there are beneath him. So that kind of fuels a bunch of other things, and there's a reason he's living there, um, and we'll get into that with the story. but So it was important for me to put him in a place that um, was not one of a middle-income or high-income demographic. There's a reason he's not in Park Slope. There's a reason he's not even in Bed-Stuy, because Bed-Stuy isn't Bed-Stuy do or die anymore. It's Bedford-Stuyvesant. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, I walked down Franklin Avenue, and I don't even recognize it anymore. So that was not the place for him. And, sure, I could have put him someplace like Baltimore or something like that. But I said, listen, I honestly don't know what Baltimore is like. And unlike a lot of people, I'm not going to say, because I've watched all five seasons of The Wire, I know what Baltimore <laughs> is like. So I said,
1: but, Thank but, you. But, but, Brooklyn, yeah.
2: but Brooklyn, I said, okay, I have a decent feel for that. So let me set him here. And then the artist um, and Stephen Harris is also a Brooklyn resident. So it's kind of cool, like, you know, two Brooklyn boys telling this story, um, about a new superhero that starts on the streets of Brooklyn.
1: That's really – I mean, it's, it's really – I really like having the specific neighborhood setting. Like, people – you can't write about New York like a monolith. It's just – I know, you know, it's just not – it doesn't work that way. Um, it's interesting because new York, East New York right now, there's, a, there's that big fight over the rezoning uh, where they're trying to, you know, upzone the area so that they can have more large apartment building development. But the question is, are they going to guarantee what percentage of that new housing is going to be affordable mm-hmm. versus what percentage is going to be market rate? So I know the people mm-hmm. who I know uh, New York Communities for Change is like a community group that's organizing in East New York, and like they're like really feel like existential right now, like whether how this deal breaks down is going to determine whether or not their members can continue to live there, or whether the, the neighborhood just goes completely gentrified as so much of the city has. I can tell you that
2: um, my fiancé and I, we bought the home that we live in now in 2014. The last three years have been such an education into the labyrinthine mechanism that is Brooklyn real estate that (laughs) someone could really write an amazing novel just with that as the center. Like, you know, kudos to Matt Fraction, who kind of tickled the subject in Hawkeye but I mean you could really go deep into the underpinnings and the and the rules of being able to buy in Brooklyn and where you're able to buy and who you're competing against it's 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 really bananas so um, I think that Interestingly enough, that this borough, what's happening in this borough, has impact beyond it. I think it's, I think it's an interesting study right now.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely.
0: Yeah.
1: And the did artist. You, um, oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was gonna
0: say, did you explore it all in in Vegas? Because I'm now, like, having read the first issue, I'm kind of thinking in my back of mind of of how. Uh, It might have worked if it was actually
1: uh, placed there instead. The sunnier environment.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Vegas does Vegas does play a part in the story later in terms of one a significant location and two because Ben's only friend in the world is a Vegas native, so that was something that I wanted to keep there since Vegas as a setting was part of the original. Mythology. So I said, okay, if I'm going to pull the main character out of there, I want to put something back there. So I did that. So that's going to factor in around, I would say, issue three. Um, but issue one takes place in Brooklyn, and issue two is actually going to take place in Philadelphia. Um, one of the reasons for that is because my father's side of the family is from Philly. And number two, Philly is also a very interesting societal study you know of a juxtaposition of money and poverty of quality life and crime of brotherly love and anger and resentment so i felt like throwing him in the mix there could also have some oomph to it as
0: well i'm really excited for that um Sorry for cutting off a lot of your your question.
1: Oh, no, I was just wondering about the artist you're working with. Um, his style is very polished it's very it the comic sort of looks like it would be in line with what you see at d c right now honestly um, and I was curious like how you guys ended up working together uh, and how he connected to the project.
2: Gotcha, so his name is n Stephen Harris, and he and I go way back. I mean, we've been friends since, I would say, the 90s, and what happened is, when I started working in the Batman editorial office, the very first story that I edited was a Hunter story in a Batman 80-page annual, and he was and he was the guy I called. I said, hey, you want to do this? And he did it, so he was the first artist that I hired as a Batman editor, and I've just seen him do really good work for years. He was the artist and visualizer of Aztec The Ultimate Man, which was written by Grant Morrison and Mark Millar. He's drawn Deadpool. He's drawn Captain America. He did a lot of other Batman work. He does an independent um, book now, which takes place in Harlem, called Ajala, A Series of Adventures with co-creator and writer Robert Garrett. Um, But and he did Voltron with Brandon Thomas. But something he did that really blew me away was an issue of a comic called Watson and Holmes, and it was nominated for an Eisner. Yeah, he did issue six with um, writer Brandon Easton, which was about sex trafficking, and it was nominated, I believe, for three Eisners in 2014. And... The storytelling was so perfect and his line work was so fluid that even though I had known Steve's work for years and I knew Steve as a person, I said, wow, I I think this may represent the apex of his work. And he's not done yet. So when the opportunity came to find an artist for Solar Man, I really had to hit the ground running. So we had an original artist who for a variety of reasons couldn't be involved, and then there was someone else that I was actually thinking of, but I was like, hey, look, I haven't worked with that person before. So because I was really in a situation where I had to move, I said I need to work with someone that I know, that I trust, that is a professional and will hit their deadlines, and that is talented and will give this the right feel. And Steve was the person I thought of, and I reached out to him, showed him some of the material, and he said he was with it, and then we were off to the races. Started with the character designs. I would send him reference, so we did a lot of talk about, okay, what are these characters wearing? What do they look like? One thing that I really like about um, Ben Tucker on The Solar Man is that he's light-skinned, and he's got a lot of hair. And when you look at black people in comics, definitely historically there's been one shade... Recently, that has changed, but not so much. Well, first of all, there's only so many black people you see in any one comic, with the exception of maybe Warren Ellis and Declan Chalvey's Injection, which actually has two black people in it, which is pretty awesome. And then, of course, you have Black Panther, which has the Wakanda nation. So the idea that he had a lighter complexion, that he didn't look like Miles Morales, or T'Challa, King of Wakanda, or um, Luke Cage, that he had a distinctly different look. That was something that I really dug, and that's something that Steve and I really worked on. And so he was really the perfect person to bring in as artist. And then the colorist is Andrew Dalhouse. Now, it's interesting that you say Solar Man kind of looks like a DC comic to you because Andrew is well-known for his work on DC Comics. He did some great work over Phil Jimenez in the Fables Fairest miniseries. And oh. he's, he colors Brett Booth on The Flash, and I think now they're moving over to Titan's Rebirth. So, hmm. And he's also coloring, or he colored the Faith miniseries for Valiant. So,
1: oh, that's such a good series.
2: Yeah, it, it, it really is. Faith, is. Faith is what we need. Mm-hmm. Unintended and as the comic book.
1: Yeah. And
2: so Andrew's work is really complimentary with Steve's. And the final um, creative person is Marshall Dillon, who's known as a letterer in comics, but he is so much more than that. So, you know, I feel really fortunate. We have a really good team, we have an opportunity to tell a story about a character that does not have a lot of baggage. And I think we're going to manage to have some fun and make something that's a little socially relevant. So I'm pretty jazzed. So, one
1: that's question pretty I've got cool. To... I like your point or of talking about, the, talking about the importance of how, uh, how he's drawn in the comic because um, it really is like there's a lot of default looks that artists give for their characters and – you know, this guy has a very specific face and it's also a very real, believable face. It does not not like a white person who they just painted a different color. He looks like an African-American character, but, and he also isn't like the standard of like the, this is your standard black character mold that we've issued for all of our characters since the beginning of time, kind of look that you get with a lot of artists yeah. who don't pay attention to the subtle differences between people. Um, and his face <laughs> is very animated. He's very, very animated. And yes, that's horrible. Thing, yeah, Steve is really yeah, Steve is really good with expressions.
2: Um, he's like crisscross in that way, who is also milestone alumni. There are certain people that they can really nail this variety of facial expressions and give um, a character so much. And um, I dig that. It definitely makes him more real. I like. The organic style, it's funny because when you talk about, you know, characters who look similar, I always think about um, Batman Hush and Lady Shiva and Talia, two different ethnic backgrounds, mm-hmm. quite likely two different ages, are in the same book, and they almost look exactly the same. That's my pet peeve. It, oh. Yeah, it's It's crazy. And if you've you've been in comics for a while and you're familiar with um, the question by um, Denny O'Neill, Dennis Cowan, and Malcolm Jones III, Lady Shiva had such a distinctive look. Like she didn't look like anybody else on the planet Earth. So when I saw her in Batman Hush and she seemed relatively homogenized, that was kind of like an indicator for me like, okay, don't ever do that. (laughs) <laughs> As an editor, don't ever do that like because I went to art school, so one of the things is i 'm fortunate enough that even though I cannot do what these visual creative talents can do, I understand the vocabulary of what they do, so when i 'm speaking to artists i 'm speaking in their language, so i can I can say let's not do this like so sometimes you know Steve may wanna kill me because I might say. You know, let's think about his eyes or, you know, we have to make sure his face is consistent at any angle, things like that. But um, it's really important. It's important that when you see him, you know that kid. You know who he is. That kid is probably someone in your neighborhood, depending upon where you live. So I want him to feel that familiar to you. You,
1: you yeah. talked
0: about it a little bit. Uh, describing the series, and you, you mentioned some of the history of it. How did you actually come about working on the title or, and you know, writing the, the actual series?
2: Well, what happened is um, the creators of Solar Man, David Oliphant and Deborah Cowman, they were looking to bring the character back. So they were looking for a publisher, and they met Brendan Deneen, who's my co-writer, and he's also the publisher of Scout Comics, And they thought that Scout Comics would be a good fit for Solar Man, and they said that they wanted to make Solar Man black. And I suspect the reason they wanted to do that is because with a black male superhero in present times, you can stand out. If he's a white male superhero, he's going to get lost in the sea of white male superheroes. So when that happened, Brendan reached out to me because we've known each other for years, He's familiar with my work and the various projects that I'm working on, and he knows where I'm coming from in terms of diversity and things like that and my background with Milestone. He said, hey, I'd I'd love for you to work with me on this. And I said, okay, how much room do we have to play? Are we just doing a blackface of the old version, or are we we really creating a new modern version? And he said, we have a lot of room. I said, okay, let's go. So um, I had the pleasure of meeting um, David and Deborah, and we all get along really well. We have a lot of conversations. We have the same goals with the character. So I came in that way as a writer. And then in terms of being the editor of the series as well, that was something that I decided because I felt like as an editor, I represent the last line of quality control. So it was important to me that this have a certain standard of Quality, so I decided to be the editor as well. And being the editor then means that Brendan is my editor in a way when it comes to scripts. So that way there's still an aspect of objectivity.
0: Interesting. How how is it working with you know being the editor of the series that uh, you're actually writing?
2: Yeah, you have to kind of switch the hats. Right, So when I'm writing, it's, it's really all about the story and trying to make sure that all the through lines are met, trying to make sure that I'm building to a crescendo, trying to make sure that all characters get their time and that I'm doing something that I would find interesting. Like That's kind of my standard. If I don't, if I don't find it interesting, then it needs to be reworked. And I actually wrote a draft. Brendan wrote the first draft of the script for issue one and then I wrote the second draft and I was like, that's a pretty solid draft and then I read some Valiant stuff by Robert Vendetti, and I read some Cyborg by David Walker and Mm -hmm. I threw that draft away and wrote another draft because I felt like it has to be of a certain standard. I wanted to be able to sit with these other books and it should You know, we should all aspire for a certain standard of quality. So from a writing standpoint, that's my goal. From an editorial standpoint, it's making sure that everyone is trying to tell the story, that all the elements mesh together well, and that it's happening in a timely fashion. Because that's the most important thing. You can be putting out the best book, but if it doesn't come out every 30 days you're in trouble. So the fact that it has to stay on schedule is something that I have to enforce kindly. And, you know, I have a really great team, so it's pretty easy. And everyone just meshes with each other well. So there's no, there's no stylistic clashing.
0: Yeah, it sounds like you got, you know, you're kind of firing on all cylinders. Um, so one thing you that kind of stood out. What you're talking about with the the revamp of Solar Man is the diversity aspect, and that you said, you know, just the fact of the lack of it uh, kind of makes the the character stand out. Um, you know, for you, I mean, you've written about it a lot. You've talked about it a lot. Like, what do you think is holding back real diversity in comics? Um, it, you know, as much as there's talk about it and hiring and revamps and companies saying they're going with it, it it still feels like it's a struggle and you know, it's everything's a fight.
2: Um, I think there are three things that are going on. One is money, right? Because at the underpinning of all of this, even, be, even before you get to ethics and morals and what people really want to do, there's money. And people can always say, well, this writer of color does not have a track record of sales that justifies putting he or she on this book. So there's that excuse that happens, which is the mainstream comic book industry, I feel, is a low-risk environment. And so it's easy to say, I want this writer to do it because that writer is doing five books already. It's easy to say, I want that writer to do it because... That writer is doing work that is actually selling high five figures. It's much harder to bring on someone else who is talented but has not been allowed to get a track record. What is good is that the narrative now, I believe, is forcing the people of power at the mainstream companies to do that. But then they're caught in between Forces 2 and Forces 3, right? So Force 2 is, quite frankly, a lot of them are not as progressive as they think they are.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: You know, they'll say, oh, yeah, I'm all for diversity, this and that. And it's like, yeah, let me see your friend's. Let me see what authors you're reading. Have you heard of this person? Have you heard of that person? So you say you're progressive but your world view is still pretty monolithic. And then the so so there's a lack of flavor in the higher echelons of some of these companies. And flavor doesn't mean I'm not white. So I'm so I automatically have it. You know, because there are people of color whom have Attempted to and successfully passed with their ethnic background not being an issue for years. So, force three is, I think, people in power do not want to seem like they are. They're bending to the will of the narrative. They want to, they want to maintain a certain kind of power, so they don't want to be like well, I'm going to hire people of color because you've called my operation out as not having it. I'm going to do good stories by good writers, and it doesn't matter what color they are. It doesn't matter what gender they are, which is BS, mm-hmm. right? But um, So I think it's a combination of those three obstacles, but look, we are seeing some change, we need to see more um, in terms of the top two companies. Marvel is doing it better. That's a fact. And Marvel still has work to do, but they That's are sure. doing it better. Yeah, Marvel has work to do. But they're doing it better than DC Comics. Um, no way. If I think. Well, okay. So the last column that I wrote talked about the fact that in July of this month, I looked through previews. I was able to find four comic books written by black writers. DC, zero. Four to zero. Zero in 2016 is negative 10. And so just something like that is an unfortunate picture. Then... You pull, you pull back further, and you say, okay, where are the black women? Then you kind of pull back even further and say, okay, um, it's interesting. DC did something that they did trump Marvel on, but we're going to have to wait a while to get there, which is DC put a black writer on a white character lead comic book. Mm-hmm. And that's Christopher Priest on the upcoming Deathstroke title.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So that's something that Marvel still has to do right now. But, uh, but unfortunately, due to, I guess, the way their publishing lineup came out where they have to finish the old Deathstroke series before they start the new Deathstroke series, is like, I don't think we're going to see Deathstroke until August, you know? So that is one of the ways in which the companies are moving at certain speeds. For DC and and Marvel, but again, Marvel to a lesser degree, there's also the issue of diversity in your editorial staffing. Okay? Because if you have a variety of different perspectives on your staff, those perspectives are going to show through in the work And the choices of talent that are brought to this table. There are so many talented people out there that are not Caucasian with all working limbs and male that there's still a lot of room to explore. And when you're talking about the two most powerful publishers in comics, and you say something like, "Well, Marvel has never had black women writing their comic book. That's a, that that's mind boggling. When you say something like, "Um, I don't know," with with DC Comics, you know, I look at I look at something like, I don't know, the, the, the Justice League of America. And since Dwayne McDuffie, I don't know if any writer of color has gotten a tackle the Justice League of America, which is kind of bananas because the Justice League of America is supposed to represent the diversity of the United States, yeah? Yeah. <laughs> and so um, how about a woman becoming a monthly writer of Justice League of America, you know, instead of, instead of all these dudes? How about that? You know,
1: give Gail the own
2: just as League of America.
1: Oh, my God, for real. I mean, Brett and I went through this entire episode of the podcast where we sort of did our dream cast, essentially, of who we wanted, fantasy draft, as, as you will, of who we wanted to have write all the new DC, write and, and do art for all the different DC Rebirth titles. And it was really easy for us to make a list of artists and writers who were diverse and were qualified to do this mm-hmm. sort of work whose like careers were mm-hmm. at the level where it made sense for them to be writing and, or drawing for a DC. I think we were like easily 50% female, easily, and we had a ton of creators of color on that list, and it wasn't hard. And if people yeah. <laughs> of color or people who gave a damn were in decision-making positions at the publishers, like these things would happen. There's, it's not like there's no pipeline for people who have these skills. It's not like there's no one with experience to hire. There's plenty of people. Absolutely.
2: And I think another thing that's happening, which is really a double-edged sword, at DC Comics in particular, is there's a re-engagement of older generation talent. And that's cool in a sense that you remember these people who helped get you here. But on the other hand, You know, there are new voices out there. So, you know, I I don't know how it works. I don't know where the line is, but I think it's important for all creators to understand that they have a time. And while they have that time, they have to milk it for all it's worth, and especially from a financial standpoint. You know, if you're, you know, the money that you're making. Like, have an IRA account set up. Have a plan, because, you know, everyone's train reaches the end of the station. I mean, ex- with very few exceptions, some people are allowed to keep coming back and keep coming back and keep coming back. But yeah. if talent is not handled in waves, then there's new voices that never get to sit at the table. and And that's a shame. I guess what's good now is that there's more opportunity for these voices to do their own things than ever before. Nothing is stopping anyone from putting out a comic book. I mean just what's going on in web comics, I haven't even started to scratch the surface yeah. of web comics yet. I feel like I would have to take a week and just live in the live in the web and get a sense of it all. But there's really nothing stopping creative people from getting their stories out using the sequential art form. So if there's any positive to the inequities that are happening at the big publishers, then that's the positive. That beyond those two worlds is this wide landscape where you have relative freedom and you're not held down by the rules of corporate intellectual properties you're not held down by 70 years of continuity which some people will break your arm for if you disobey <laughs> one rule you know you can just come up with an idea and you can develop it and you can run with it,
0: it it's interesting you bring up the the old the you know old school folks coming back and I, you know i think part of that is because when they were doing it and, and you basically nailed it and that they you know they didn't have you know IRAs and and good management of money and you know to be honest the industry doesn't hasn't had the best record of taking care of you know its its vets and the and the people who've created everything and you know in an That's ideal world the hero initiative shouldn't exist in an ideal world like there's yeah. there no mm-hmm. reason
1: for it absolutely um, right
0: and the the fact that we have you know have that is just is like a black will be forever a black mark on the industry as long as it, i think it exists Mm-hmm. Um, you, well, I mean, you, talked, you talked about when you're starting um, with Milestone and you started with internship. Did, did you get paid as an intern back then? Because this is something we've uh-huh. talked about every so often.
2: I, I, I got paid um, a very small stipend, and now I'm mm-hmm. going to date myself because <laughs> at the time, the Metro Card did not give you a free transfer to your next mode of transportation. So I lived in a 2 fare zone. And so I had to pay two fares going to Milestone and two fares going back home, but they only gave me enough for one fare in each direction. So in actuality, I was losing money um, every day I interned there. And so it was it was very little, but I did it for the experience. And mm-hmm. I, at the time, I had lost a job a few months previous, and you know. I read about Milestone, and at first I was like, well, I'm not going to work for free, you know, because a friend of mine was in the internship. And then when I didn't see a better option, and I kept reading about what they were doing. I was like, you know, there's something really important going on here. I want to be a part of that. I want to see what's going on. So, you know, and and the, and the thing is, I actually wasn't going to get the internship. I was being interviewed like Dwayne McDuffie, who hardly said anything during the interview, and Matt Wayne, who was an editor there. And after the interview, I thought I nailed it because I was like, you know, I, I know comics, I got this. And it turned out that Dwayne, accurately so, felt that, you know, I had a chip on my shoulder, and he was like, hey, I don't know if this guy is right for our, our little operation there. And my friend backed me. He said, no, nope, you, should, you, you should bring him in. You know, he'll do right by the place. And so they gave me a shot and you know I did. You know, I really did my best for those guys and um for a while we were like a family and I think it showed. But um yeah, I started at a high risk situation, so I really just applied myself and I wanted to take any task that they gave me, interesting or menial, and just do it to the best of my ability. And I did. And I got lucky that they wanted to to teach me everything that they knew, you know. And um, I learned a lot, and it's part of it's part of the reason why I've been able, I guess, to kind of you know still navigate in this business, which is pretty merciless. Like this bur- this business has no problem swinging the skies around and just leaving you
0: headless at the curb. Yeah. Yeah, that's an understatement. <laughs>
2: yeah, you know, what I, you know what I mean? Like, like there are corpses and tread marks on burst bellies everywhere in comics. And um, I'm fortunate enough that thus far I'm not one of those. Uh,
1: you know, one of the, the main points that we that keeps circling around in the conversations online is what what are the strategies that – you work for DC as an editor, like, you know how the industry works. What are the strategies right. that fans can use to m- most successfully lobby for change in the industry? Um, because like, one of the things you always say in organizing is like, what is the theory of change? Like what is the action that people can take that will result in the result that we want to see rather than just like making us feel good, which is not a terrible thing in this world, but is not going to uh ultimately get the results we want? Like what what should we be doing as fans who want diversity in, our, in the creative staff that work on comics as well as in the characters who are in the comics? Like what can we do that will make this change happen?
2: Wow. There were two things. First one is really difficult because it would take planning and unification of efforts and maybe about two years. And it would really be a mass redirection of monies. So let's say hypothetically, you're you're a Marvel and DC buyer. You're a Marvel and DC buyer because you've been programmed to be a Marvel and DC buyer. And one day you get hit by a meteor and you feel like neither of those companies are meeting your needs. What if for two years, you decided to spend that money at three other companies of your choice? What if you told your friends the same thing? What if you started a panel at various comic book conventions and you spread the same message? And there's a bunch of people in the audience that feel the same way about you and then suddenly there's this theme that's going around. And then that theme extends to social media. And then other groups get created. And then suddenly, like in, say, two years, there's this big movement that represents a demand for change, and they are redirecting their funds to other publishers until they get what they want.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: Now, that's possible, but it's complicated. So, to me, then, the more, the easier one, you can start off with small groups, or you as an individual, you have to take your argument to the people with power okay, like something that we're going to get into, but I'll just kind of skate across it now. So I see online, you got some people that are saying something like, I'm going to stop buying any books edited by Eddie Brugganza. That's going to be my boycott. And it's like, okay, that may not be the answer because there are – teams of creators they have mortgages they have children they have spouses they have you know basic lifestyles by you taking that action you think you're hurting one individual and you're probably hurting more like 25 so to me the thing to do would be you take it to the leadership you take it to the head of the snake and that's where you take your concerns And you keep doing that, and you keep doing that, and you make a pest out of yourself. And you and your friends do the same thing, and you keep doing that. And it's, I'm not going to stop asking the question until you give me an answer I'm satisfied with. I will not be satisfied with that answer until I see it manifested in policy. You know, we Mm -hmm. bring the dynamics of activism to comics. But I think part of the problem is a lot of people go to comics because they want to escape the real world. They want to escape politics. They want to escape activism. They want to escape judgment. They want to escape racism, sexism. They want to escape all these things that are just like headaches to deal with. And they just want to read X-Men. And I'm like, you know what? It's all interconnected. I don't want to go to X-Men to escape. I don't want to escape. I want to deal with the problems, and the problems have been intrinsic in this industry for decades, and they should no longer have a place here. They should no longer have a place anywhere. But since this is where we're operating, let's decide to purge it from here. Let's let's just decide that. You know, one of the things that I have suggested in an interview that I did with the Blurred Girl was, you know, why don't the, the heads of these comic book companies, you know, they can get together and, and drink beers, and they can get together at parties, and they can get together and come up with crossovers. How about getting together the leaders of the comic book companies and basically writing the policies, the universal policy for ethical behavior in our companies, what we will tolerate, what we will not tolerate, because we are the guardians. And it is our responsibility to set the ethical standard. Why don't they do that? Why don't a bunch of them get in a room at San Diego in July, basically act like the G7 nations of comics, and write the standard by which we are going to treat each other? Well, Why, hey, it's I'm just a back. dreamer, right?
0: Uh, well, it's, it's funny that you mentioned this because when the whole alley thing went down, we were figuring out what our next steps were to try to create change. And what you're describing is exactly what we were bringing up, and it just died. I mean, the, the more people we talked to about it and tried to get involved, like, there was just a wall of, of inactivity and, and diffusion of anyone wanting to do it, uh, which was really depressing because it was it – was, uh, a two-step thing was, one, exactly what you're describing of, of actually creating an, a, a role of ethics with uh, with bloggers, with the companies themselves, and stick to it. And then the other was uh, – the, the second prong was to actually take it to the higher-ups, not the higher-ups of, of Marvel and DC, but we're talking Disney and Warner Brothers. You buy stock you know you go to your meetings and you protest at the the stockholders meetings and you keep on bringing it up over and over and over again um you know you, you yeah. see it in politics you, you see it in politics mm-hmm. with um with net neutrality and Verizon it comes up i think every single stockholder meeting now um you know there there's been those discussions for years I mean, we we tried organizing that and it fucking died um which is really beyond sad and irritating um, and you're talking to two people who do political organizing for a living um, and have died. So, I mean, we, we wow. got pushback. Like, uh, I, I, yeah, it's just beyond frustrating. Well, I
1: mean, it's interesting the thing uh, is there's a
0: whole... Yeah, go ahead. Sorry, sorry. Real
1: quick, there's like a whole crew of folks who are really active um, as writers and on social media uh, around issues of representation and, and also about harassment and sexism in the industry and racism in the industry and homophobia in the industry, and like it seems like a lot of the most vocal and most the most engaged fans in in the in the comics world are people who are angry about this stuff right now, so it's sort of like a weird gap between people who have things to say and then like needing to take action. Beyond that, and I think that people may have holdups because they view themselves as being cr- critics or writers or something like that in a way that they don't think they, they can actually also be activists, but they don't realize that they're the only people who will, really, because other people are just not in, as invested, you know? Right.
2: Yeah, no, I hear you, and I think the irony is that the critics and the journalists and the writers basically are the activists. Right, mm-hmm. because creators are terribly compromised because they still have to operate in the mechanism. I cannot imagine. Swear to God, God bless the female creators who can work for DC Comics in the midst of all of this. I can't imagine what that's like.
0: Mm-hmm. So well, there's like two. Right, now. <laughs> yeah, <it's
2: happening>.
1: <laughs> <laughs> sorry <laughs> but um
2: well that's that's the thing but, um, so creators are conflicted, and so it's hard for them to be activists unless they've achieved a certain kind of power where they don't need the two um top publishers anymore, for example, like a Kelly mm mm-hmm. mhm-, she's got milk fed productions she can say what she wants. Yep. Um, most creators have not ascended to that level where they can say what they want because it will impact them negatively. So it's the people outside who really are the activists, you know? Um, and activism doesn't necessarily... It doesn't mean you have to be extreme it doesn't mean you have to be disrespectful, but it really speaks to pursuit of something better, you know, and done in a vocabulary of action that you cannot be vilified by the enemy. The enemy cannot vilify you by being diplomatic. The enemy cannot vilify you for doing research. The enemy cannot vilify you for unifying and coming up with a common message.
1: I mean, what do you think about the strategy about putting continually putting this in the laps of Marvel and Warner sorry, of Warner Brothers and Disney as companies who have a lot to lose about about being sued? you know for harassment sued for all kinds of things that seem to go on without any actual HR policy happening like obviously Marvel and Marvel as a comics publisher and DC as a comics publisher rather than as an intellectual property generator are not a huge money source for them but they can be a huge source of public shaming um so I'm wondering about like you know, like you said in your piece that we ran on our site that you know cBR didn't want, didn't run your piece, and we did because we loved it, like you're talking about calling in the adults, which is the people at corporate, and having them call their you know their misbehaving children into account. how How do we do that? Is, this, is it protesting at shareholders' meetings?
2: Right. you know, I don't have the answer first of all, I don't think there's a single answer i don't I don't have it. Here would be my suggestion though if if you're going to go after, say, the parent companies, then it would be really good if you had someone who used to operate at that level so they know the rules of that level. Because if you know the rules of Marvel and DC Comics, but you don't know the rules of the parent companies and you're going to take the fight there, you're probably you know, going to get smacked down. But if you managed to find someone who could tell you the rules of that scale, then they could could help you with strategy. They could tell you how to navigate through it. Because, you know, that's one of the things that, you know, I did say in the column that your site was kind enough to put out there, which is that I do not believe Diane Nelson is dealing with the day-to-day operations of DC Comics. And that's, like, not her fault. That's not a slate. But that's not her position. Her position is higher than that. If she was the Jeanette Kahn of the 21st century, then we'd be talking about a different thing, because she'd be Uh the president of DC Comics, and she'd be in the trenches every day, and this stuff would be happening on the same floor that she's sitting on. But she's in a different atmosphere. So that's why, to me, there's that disconnect, you know, between um, a female president of an overarching company and female harassment in a subsidiary company. And so that's why when people would throw her name at me, I'd be like, dude, don't do that to me like I just fell off the turnip truck to take from Arlen Ellison. I did not. Okay? And I Mm -hmm. know the distinction. So... You know, so to me, that's what you would have to do if you're going to take the fight to a certain scale. If you could get an ally or an advocate or someone who used to operate at that scale but no longer does and you find that person, you say, hey, explain to me how I'm going to need to do this because, quite frankly, I'm not equipped. And that's something really important to know. It's important to know what you are equipped for and what you're not. And what you're not, you say, okay, I need to find an ally so they can teach me, so they can let me know what I need to know Um, but this isn't going away I don't think it should until there's change so what's needed is a constructive continuous effort and I see people like you know Janela Salen doing that Mm
1: -hmm.
2: you know God bless that woman
1: yeah I'm really glad she got the Eisner nomination. I think she should have gotten it for her journalism as well as for her comics public publisher. But um, I mean, yeah, I mean, I think, do you think that, I mean, you might not know the answer either, but like do you get the sense at all that DC corporate even knows about what's happening at the publisher level with the harassment that's going on? I mean, there finally was like one story covering it in the mainstream press. But it's like not on the Wall Street Journal, you know what I mean? It's not in Variety yet. I think we have to. I think we have to. I suspect that we have to get stories into Variety and the Hollywood Reporter, and wow. then they'll pay attention.
2: Wow, that would be something. Um, I think they know about it, but I would imagine that there are corporate mechanisms that deal with that in whatever way. The rules dictate, and you know, human resources is one big mystery world. And human resources exists to serve the, the company. company. You know, yeah. if, if in the if in the twentieth century, if at that time, human resources serve the individual, that is a dead era. Human resources serves the company.
1: Once you know that, yeah, huh? I mean, they were invented in an effort to stymie, to stymie union organizing. Like, that was what HR was developed to do, was to give people the sense that there was something they could do through their employer with their employer to deal with the oppressive conditions that they worked under. But, mm. I mean, that said, like, there, the fact that there doesn't even seem to be an operational HR department protecting the fact like, that, that these companies are trying to make money um is kind of mystifying. I think yeah, they're I themselves think kind of vulnerable.
2: It's I think it comes down to the fact that in our hearts we would we would like to think that because this is a sanctuary of imagination, that the ugliness of the rest of the world would not get here. And so what we're dealing with is the really harsh disillusionment. Um, and unfortunately, unfortunately, there's more villainy than justice, right? So mm-hmm. I guess we've got to figure out a way to shift that.
0: Well, I've got a, I've got a question. Yeah. I mean, you you worked for DC when when you started did they ever give you, like, an HR handbook or sit you down for policies? I mean, I know every corporate job I've had, which I'm not... I mean, a lot of work's in politics. It's not like it's the most mature industry in the entire world. Um, I've at least been given HR handbooks of, like, what is acceptable and what's not and had to sign a piece of paper, whether or not I actually, you know, read what was in front of me.
2: I can tell you that when I was at DC Comics... If I remember correctly, there was an email that we would get every six months.
0: Interesting. Okay. And
2: the the email was basically the reminder of ethics of behavior and the reminder of consequence. And so, and then here's a funny thing that happened to me, which kind of woke me up. Now, this was during No Man's Land, but this was before I became the editor of Birds of Prey. And one day... I walk back into my office, and there's a a woman sitting in my chair at my desk. And it turned out to be the legendary Barbara Kiesel, right? And so I talk with her, and I used to have, like, all the covers of all the different books that I was working on, all on the walls and stuff like that. And she looked at a a Batman cover with Batgirl on it, and she was like, her legs are spread. What woman can get in that position? Can you tell me... (laughs) A woman can get in that position. Does that look right to you? And I wasn't ready for that. Like, I was green. I was 29. I wasn't ready for that. So I was like, um, you should go speak to Benny about that. Like, his office is right over there. But that really was a wake-up call for me because, you know, because it's like, you know, this is not just about you um, bringing – a cultural diversity and looking out for that, you know, you have to look out for representation in general. So when I became the editor of Birds of Prey, that was something that I was really conscious about. I was like, okay, except for Wonder Woman, this comic book at this time is really representing female heroes at DC Comics, and it's representing female friendship. And you are now responsible for that. So take it seriously, and you know that's something that I've just continued throughout my career. And you know I've spoken about it in columns, and it, it's funny. You know people try to write off my columns and say, "Oh, he only talks about black stuff." Now oh, they say that all. because they can't. They say that because they can't read. Yeah. Because if they could read, mm-hmm. they would know. I don't. I I don't just do that. Or they'll say something like, "Oh, he's just anti DC Comics." I'd be like. No, I'm pretty pro-DC Comics. DC Comics is anti-DC Comics. I'm pretty pro-DC Comics. Yeah. Okay? So don't get it twisted. So, you know, for me, you know, it's equity of treatment for everyone is is just important, and it shouldn't be something that people should have to climb up a mountain to earn or negotiate. You know, it should be given. So, you know, I mean, I guess a bunch of us are like cynical optimists, yeah. So, <laughs> even even with everything that's happened, in, we're like, you know what, this is this is still worth fighting for. You know, let's let's leave the industry better than it was when we got here, and, and maybe in that small way, we're leaving the world better than it was when we got here. Because comic books have become more important because now these mythologies are getting translated into these movies that are making $200 million overseas before they even get here. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: So there's billions of dollars at stake, and comic books are now having that impact. So maybe doing this now at this time, maybe this is fortuitous, because maybe if it was done 15 years ago, no one would have noticed. You know, fight the fight now, and it could get noticed. You know, like you said, Alana, really the, the line between CBR and variety is hair thin. Fifteen years ago, it was a brick wall. Oh. Not anymore. So this may be the perfect time to doggedly continue this discussion.
0: Yeah, the other question will be: is uh, question is is if those uh, larger publications are willing to bite the hand that feeds them in so many ways? But that's a whole other and that, problem And that's why
1: I think it has got to be Variety and, and 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 Hollywood Reporter. Like they're not they're not in the pocket of the comics publishers, giving them sweet insight scoops and stuff. They they they're, they don't they they're, they worry about Sony. You know what I mean?
2: Right, right. No, absolutely true. Absolutely true. And you know. It's interesting cuz one thing you know that I want to bring up that you know people have talked about and stuff like that or asked me about you know when you look at a website like comic book resources I can't speak for comic book resources the only thing that I can do is I can refer someone to my index of columns over the last 2 years and let them see what comic book resources allowed me to get away with when I wrote a particular column about what I thought was the feasibility of boycotting in comic books, there was a long standing relationship I had that basically kinda ended. You know, because of that column. That happens. You know, as much as I try to be optimistic about the hope of comics and you know, choose to be diplomatic, there is a risk there. And that website Mm -hmm. allowed me to take risks like that for two years. So even in a case where the column that I did ran on graphic policy, you know, I'm still writing for CVR. And there's the whole community of websites out there. But the thing is, you know, it's business. So I do not have any unrealistic expectations. And for me, the important thing was there's this thing that's going on. It's being discussed. I think I have something to add to the discussion. Um, And I felt that there was a sense of an immediacy to do that. I kind of felt like I don't really have the time to, to edit this. I don't have the time to go through it with like a needle and thread because I feel like the statement that I've made here is emotionally honest and potent. And so for me, it was important to get it out as soon as possible. You know, there are different types of stories. They work in different ways. But this one was just me really wanting to, I guess, add to the discussion. I didn't. I didn't just want to be a bystander.
1: I felt it was too important. Thank you. Definitely. Yeah. York. Yeah,
0: it was definitely something to get out right away. It's interesting, you know, with the idea of, of the boycott. There's actually two questions I got for you. You've, you brought up boycotts a couple times. We've talked about it and danced around it a little bit. Do the comic companies or the bigger companies of Disney and, and Warner Brothers do they care about the comics or do they care about the IP? I mean, it's one thing to, to boycott a comic that's selling, you know, $50,000 or 50,000 copies that brings in, what, maybe $200,000 a month minus all the expenses for it uh, versus, as you said, you know, a movie that made $200 million and hasn't even opened in the U.S. I mean, it's one thing to to boycott, you know, Captain America the comic versus Captain America Civil War the movie. Um, You know, is it a, you know, to do the latter, would you actually maybe finally get the, the actual... um attention of
1: Hmm.
0: of disney and 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 warner brothers and the second is when you're talking about birds of prey as an editor it was interesting you brought up that you know you had to focus on friendship and there you you realized the representation of what that series was as an editor like were you conscious of the audience that was probably enjoying the book or maybe who the book was for and you know did you work towards you know, uh, delivering a comic for that audience and and as a whole, like, do you think that's something that seems to be missing in the industry? Because when we've talked to creators, especially around these relaunches, we've said, "Hey, have you talked to your editors and figured out like who your comic is for and what your audience is?" And I think every single creators come back and been like, "Nope, no idea." They just said. Come up with a concept and go from there. And no matter how clearly it was, this series is pro- would work really well geared towards this audience. Like The creators are just like, no, we've never had that discussion. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> okay. There's right. a lot there, sorry. So, no,
2: no worries. So first question, in terms of the boycott, I feel, this hypothetically, I'm not advocating it.
0: Hypothetically,
2: right. if there was a mass boycott of a Captain America comic book, I do believe that publicity of that would get to the main corporation. And the thing about the mainstream audience is they don't know the difference. So they could read that you're boycotting Captain America in a comic book, but they'll think you're boycotting Captain America. Period. And they mm. will blow it up to a higher proportion. And it, I, and then I think it would start to annoy people at the corporate level. So I do think, depending upon the comic, if it has a character that is an intellectual property of visibility on a global scale, I think it is possible to get the attention of the parent company. I think it is possible to get impact. Again, I don't advocate that. Um, And I think boycotting is a really slippery slope because companies are owned by companies that are connected to other companies that do these operations in like Rwanda and places like these. And if you go into that rabbit hole before you know it, you may not be buying anything. Yeah. Because is the, 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 the multi-national, multi-corporate, multi-layered complex of business is too much to – I think, really draw an absolute line across the board. Maybe you could do it with one. I don't know if you could do it across the board in your life. Um, So, I think, if I was going to say what an action would be, I think the action should be, you know, three parts. One, a redirection of monies to publishers who are doing what you believe in. Two... Creating groups and expanding that message. And three, taking the discussion to the people with power. You know, do something like change.org and get like 10,000 signatures. And you send that to like two co-publishers or one editor-in-chief or one publisher. And you say, "This this is a representation of how we feel. This is what we're looking for, you know. So that's a, you know, that's a possible way to do it if you feel it's necessary. Um, with me, what I do as a consumer is um, I try to purchase, you know, what I believe in. And right now, I think I'm spending more money outside of Marvel in DC than I'm spending inside of Marvel and DC, and I'm pretty
1: uh-huh.
2: happy about that. Um You know, there are other companies that I think are really putting out some great stuff and I want to support them. Um, In terms of Birds of Prey, in terms of the audience, I felt like I got a sense of the Birds of Prey audience when I would read the letters that would come in from the fans. And when I would talk to the creators who interacted with fans at conventions, and things like that. And I think the great thing about Birds of Prey is that I feel like Birds of Prey, you know, it, it went through a variety of demographics. Um, but I feel like, in a way, it did things that Wonder Woman did not. And one of them was friendship, you know, the uh-huh. friendship of women. Um, because Wonder Woman's a solitary character. But with Dinah and Babs, you had a friendship that. Started out with two people who did not, who had never seen each other. You know, they did not meet until Birds of Prey twenty one. But before that, you know, you have Dinah who's risking her life on the orders of this woman she has never met. But through spending time with people and putting yourselves in these situations, you develop a friendship. So by the time they met. You know, they they did know each other. And then the next stage of their friendship began. And so I think for me what was just important was being aware of that, talking to women, and just creating the best comic book possible. When um, I brought Butch Geis on as editor, I mean, as artist, I was the editor, Um, his wife, Julie, would actually give him some notes. Just, like, a few little notes, and he would throw them to me, and I'd be like, let's do that. That's cool by me. You know, let's get that kind of input in, and let's bring that to the book. And I was really proud of an issue. It was the first Dixon and Geist issue, which did not have Dinah and Babs as superheroes. It just had them in their regular lives, and Dinah was trying to help a uh, next-door neighbor, and she was being abused by her husband. hmm and unfortunately, she ended up killing him. She shot him. And I was like, wow, this is a great non-superhero, superhero comic book. And it shows that we fail sometimes. Right. It shows that we can't, we can't help everybody. Like, Dinah may be one of the best martial artists in the DC universe, but she couldn't save that woman. Um, and... You know, with Marvel comics, I feel like one of their most potent female relationships was Misty Knight and Colleen Wing, the daughters of the Dragon, who I grew up on. And they're not together anymore, and I'm kind of like, which which one of you is asleep at the wheel that you're totally missing this opportunity here to bring these two women back together um, and really have a discussion? not only about female friendship, interracial friendship and and, you know, these two women who come from different worlds. You know, I feel like there's a really beautiful story there and it's not getting told right now. So basically birds you know, that's where D C has the one up on Marvel. What are they gonna do with it? I guess we'll find out in Rebirth.
1: Huh. It's, it's interesting just because like that, that was, those were such important comics for like just tons of people of my generation of comics readers, um, both like women and like queer people of all genders. Um, everybody was reading Birds of Prey and it was the entrance point for so many folks who wouldn't have picked up a comic book otherwise, really, that wouldn't have known that there was something there to appeal to them. And I mean, like, when you guys were working on it, like, even starting in the early, like, you know, pre gail Simone stuff, like, was there a notion that, like, this was going to have particular resonance for those audiences at all?
2: You know, I I think one of the beauties of working on comics is you really have no idea how you touch people's lives. But you're caretaking these mythologies that are important to people. Um, I had a had a recent thing happen where I was on Twitter and okay, so spoiler alert for people who aren't caught up on Arrow, right? And suddenly like this <laughs> thing started going around. People were talking about like Laurel Lance is dead. It's like, what? And I hadn't watched it in a while. So, and so I just put out this tweet, like, Hey, I don't know if this is true, but if this is true, like as a former editor of of Prayer, I'm really upset. And Funnily, like, I connected with all these Black Canary fans. And I was like, holy Toledo, man. Like, it's really this reminder of the symbolic power of these characters. And so when I was editing the book, I knew I had a responsibility. I didn't know that responsibility that the ripple effect from that could carry 10 or 20 years. You know, I, I felt like I'm doing the best that I can now. You know, people will remember it for a year or two or who knows, but at least someone will enjoy it today. At least it'll give them something today. You know, because that's kind of what we want, I think, from our heroic fiction, right? We, we just kind of want a boost, but we just kind of want a reminder that even though it's harder to be a person of ethics, even though it's harder to not raise your fist, that that is the better way to be. Our heroes teach us about endurance. You know that's what that's what makes Superman great, right? But mm-hmm. With all the crap that goes on, like Superman represents a better solution, you know. So um, I had no idea that it would have impact, you know, so far, but I'm glad it did. I'm glad and I was honored to make that contribution, and um, I'm looking forward to making more contributions in different ways.
1: Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> Um, I you know, I just I think like there's this, there's this analogy that I've been trying out for a little while and I, I wanna sort of see what, what you think about it. But in the sense there's there's this in the energy in in the energy industry, a lot of folks run around saying uh, oh, we can't go all to renewable energy to wind and air and thing you know, it's the same thing to wind energy and solar energy. Uh, right now because it's not, uh, we don't have, there isn't enough of it yet. We have to keep drilling for oil and all that and switching in in any way is risky. And then, you know, you point out like, hi, we're literally all going to die if we don't change. And we're just talking about making a switch in investment now that maybe it's not as immediately profitable you right now, but very soon it'll be more so because we won't be able to continue drooling you know, drilling and using all of these, um, non, non replenishable fuel sources. And mm-hmm. that's sort of the metaphor for what I see, the comics industry, like they're scared to take these short term risks. So they just keep on repeating themselves and recycling the same old characters by the same old creators doing the same old, you know, non diverse and very, very locked in specific genre sort of stories. Um, and what they don't realize, and, and their readership keeps shrinking and shrinking. And they need to, even like when you know, try, doing a new book and trying something new might feel risky at first, even if it's a money loser for a few years, in the end, if it's good and if it's representing something for a new audience and if they're actually taking effort to put it into the hands of that new audience by marketing it to them, it will make money. So I sort of view the comics industry as being kind of like the fossil fuel industry. Um, it's because of its dedication to short-term protectiveness, it is ultimately undermining its ability to exist in the future at all.
2: I mean, I think that's a perfect analogy. The comic book industry is very risk-averse. The comic book industry is in part fueled by desperation to fight the forces of sales attrition, um, to maintain interest in fans who at this point are pretty jaded. Um, If I think about a comic book that I feel like is part of a narrative that represents the hope of comics, and this is not to further um, add to a particular narrative or turn anyone into an icon or anything like that, but I really think Miss Marvel is a great comic hmm mm-hmm. And I think it's a great comic because it doesn't smell like it doesn't smell like an attempt to make money. It doesn't smell like an attempt to dovetail into the Marvel cinematic universe. It really felt like the kind of comic books that Marvel was making in the eighties, which is someone says, You know what would be cool and we make it a comic book or in the seventies Miss Marvel was such a breath of fresh air. And um, measure that against something like Wonder Woman. And depending upon which month you look at, Miss Marvel outsells Wonder Woman. And if I'm at DC Comics, I've got to ask myself why that is. If the two golden W's are represent one of the most impactful social icons to women everywhere. I have gotten into conversations with women different ages, different ethnic backgrounds, especially Latinas, who basically said, I grew up on Linda Carter Wonder Woman because mm-hmm. they'll see me reading a Wonder Woman trade paperback on a train or something like that. If you have a character that is that powerful and with which you could do so much. And she's being outsold by Kamala Khan. Well, first off, bow to the greatness of Kamala Khan. But secondly, you need to ask yourself why that's happening. And you need to fight. You need to fight. Diana, Princess of Themyscira, needs to put on the battle armor and fight. Because she's Wonder Woman, damn it. (laughs) Wonder Woman means so much to so many people. Me Wonder Woman. we are you doing selling like thirty thousand copies? What are you crazy? So sorry, getting a little emotional. It's after eleven o'clock, but, but rightly, rightly you know, so. You know, you <laughs> so, know, but but basically, it's, it needs it needs to go against its instincts. The comic book industry needs to go against its instincts and just get crazy and risky again. Because there are certain things that you can maintain that represent the profitable foundation. You know, it's just like motion pictures. There are films that make a gazillion dollars and those films allow for other films that will not make a gazillion dollars, but will get critical acclaim to exist. So, you know, let's think about that kind of balance for comics. Um, you know, and see what we get out of it. Um, let us hope, let us hope that despite what happened with Shelley Bond recently, that there are really brighter days ahead for Vertigo that will be defined by more than a quasi-imprint run by a musician.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, my, my understanding is that he's like somebody who cares a lot about LGBTQ representation. I mean, obviously we'll see when the rubber hits the road. Um, But it's absolutely awful with them getting rid of Shelley Bond and especially in light of everything else that's going on. I mean, one thing I wanted to say about wonder woman is so there had been rumors um, before rebirth that Marguerite Bennett was going to be given wonder woman was going to be hired to write wonder woman. And that seemed like a really cool place for her to be given how popular bombshells are given that she's doing uh, uh, red Sonia right now too. And I was super excited to have, when I heard that she'd be writing it, I haven't bought Wonder Woman in, like, you know, I tried it in the New 52, and that was like, eh, it stops mm-hmm. uh, for the reasons that so many other folks did. Um, and then next thing I know, Marguerite Bennett is not working on Wonder Woman anymore. It's Greg Rucka. Now, here's the thing. Greg Rucka is one of the best comics writers, like, period, and no duh. But going And definitely to Greg, of Diana. Uh, exactly. But, and go, but the thing is, going to Greg Rucka to revisit Wonder Woman is an entirely risk-averse and dead future move for DC, because they're choosing to go back to an older you know, white male storyteller, and granted, he's one of the only men who I trust to write women well, but he's still a man, over going to a young woman who has a really impressive track record right now and who can really build a future and do something new with the character. And I assure them, if there was a young woman writing Wonder Woman right now, that would be um, covered heavily in women's magazines, it would be covered heavily in the feminist press, it would be in the news. Greg Rucca, going back to Wonder Woman, however, is only covered in the comics press. It's a step backwards, even though he's a feminist and a very good writer, having him cover Wonder Woman is a step backwards, and NDC and, and is being risk-averse in a way that is not helping them financially, in fact. I think having Rucka do Wonder Woman instead of a young woman with a great track record like Marguerite Bennett.
2: Yeah, when I read that, I was I was conflicted as well because honestly, I feel like I feel like Greg wrote the best Wonder Woman run of like the last fifteen years, and so there was a part of me was like, well, damn, like if anyone's qualified, it is him. But when I heard originally that. Marguerite Bennett was supposed to write, I was like, wow, okay, that's that's a smart move. It's just a smart move, and you're going to get a Wonder Woman unlike any that you've seen before. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know what would be cool? Wouldn't it be cool if Marguerite Bennett made her own Wonder Woman that was unfettered by the rules of Warner Brothers, and then she could take it there? She could go all the way. She could drill down to the DNA level of the themes and not have to worry about the Wonder Woman editor saying something or the co-publishers of DC Comics saying something. Like, she could just go there,
1: man. That book would be mind-blowing. That's the book I would buy. But you also are somebody who's not completely wedded to a piece of IP for its own sake. Like, it's much easier for someone who's not really like, doesn't know who these writers are, you know, just say like, Oh, I want to read a wonder woman book. It's a lot, it's a lot harder to, it's a lot harder to get out and sell something that's not related to intellectual property. People know, uh, I mean, in the long run, it's probably better for Bennett for it to be her own thing. Cause then she owns the rights and da da. but Right, but she doesn't have the cachet. Off, yeah. It, yeah, exactly. Um,
2: yeah, sorry, my apologies. I not mean to interrupt you. Um, no,
1: no, but that's exactly it, yeah. Yeah, well, the only thing I would say to that is that
2: image comics exist in defiance of that. You know, there are, there are these image comics and they're being made into projects. They're, or, or they have a certain level of, um, of popularity that they have a social impact, like a saga, or Descender by Jeff Lemire and Dustin Gwynn having the movie deal like two weeks before issue one came out. Um, You know, so I think depending upon where you're positioned, I think you can still um, have visibility on a playing field inclusive of and beyond comics I do agree that there's a certain cachet that comes with writing Wonder Woman now, right now, especially with the film coming out next year. And unfortunately, for whatever circumstances, um, Marguerite Bennett was not afforded that opportunity. Um, But when it comes to Wonder Woman, and here I go again on my soapbox, like, why isn't there a line of Wonder Woman comic books. Like, Why is there a Superman line and a Batman line and there's not a Wonder Woman line? Really? That's not showing both your cheeks to the world? About what Mm. you think about this character? Are you crazy? Where's Wonder Woman, Wonder Women, Wonder Girl, Wonder World? What? I just threw you four titles for free.
1: Where's my Etta (laughs) Candy comic? I want something starring her being (laughs) fabulous. Yeah.
2: Like, just don't give me the Steve Trevor comic. I'm so sick of Steve Trevor. I don't, you know, <laughs> I, I, I want Steve life, Trevor banned. I want Steve Trevor banned from the mythology. <laughs> banned. I can't stand him. Because to me, Steve Trevor basically means that Wonder Woman must be heterosexual. That's what, and, his, and her first love must be a man. What? Who said that? What are you, crazy? Yeah. Who said yeah. that? Dude falls out of a plane and suddenly Diana's got the feels? She doesn't even know what that is. What the hell is that dude fell out of a plane? What is that? <laughs> he smells. What is that? So, um, I, I mean, if I was them, I would be like, hey, we need to extend Wonder Woman past one comic book. We need to treat her with the... With the same treatment that we give to Bruce and Callel, you know.
0: We've been we kind of been dancing around it a little bit. There seems to be a an unwillingness to invest in community. Um, I mean, one of the, I think the thing that was really interesting. I mean, every month I do my my demographics look at and see where things shift and posts. Uh, not necessarily the, the New 52 or Convergence, well, I guess it would have been Post-Convergence, when uh, DC put out like, actual diverse, interesting characters and books that weren't selling well, there was an actual shift in those who like DC on Facebook. Like, there was a measurable shift towards women and other minorities. And long run, that could absolutely have paid off. Um, but it seems like, you know, everyone doesn't look at that, that they, they, they're they not looking at that big picture one, two, three years down the road. It's just a three months down the road for, you know, what we're putting out.
2: Right. Um, I think the unfortunate thing about DC Comics initiatives is that they bail too fast on the initiatives. Because if you do an initiative and it's clearly temporary, then it comes off as just ingenuous, right? Like you weren't really real about it in the first place because you get some resistance and you're going to bail. What's supposedly happening now with Rebirth and a two-year macro story is just like, what? Like, who that doesn't address the issues or the things that you supposedly learned over the last five years from the changing fan base, the ones who are responding to different things from your competition, who are responding to different things in entertainment. Um, So it seems to me that you should know that there are certain books that are going to make you a certain amount of money and those should allow you to maintain other books that are not going to make a certain amount of money and as you said, in the short run may not be successes, but in the long run, over a period of time, they would have impact. Um, But that doesn't seem to be what's happening now in the mainstream comic industry, it doesn't seem like there's any room for risk. And crazy enough, I think I think the Marvel and DC universe were kind of were kind of built on risk. We're kind of oh, built on yeah. a crazy idea coming up, and someone saying, "Make that a comic book. Um, do something with that." You know, Legends of Tomorrow is a bunch of risky ideas thrown together. Rip Hunter, Time Master—Who the hell knew? <laughs> you know what that mean? But, but there you go. So, I think there would be—I think it would be interesting if there was a bit more calculated risk and a bit more uncalculated risk. Just like, let's just do the best that we could possibly do with this.
0: See what happens. Yeah, I, I I would say not just the risk, but there also needs to be community building. Like there's these fantastic communities that exist online that love characters. I mean Kamala Corps is a perfect example who uh-huh. will drive series. And you need to you need to actually have people who understand community engagement and 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 community building and outreach to that to to figure out how to actually tap into those and nurture them. Like it's, It still seems like oh, there's this mentality stuck in the, we sell to the stores. The stores are the ones who build the community and sell it to the individuals when, it, and when it's as much the, the publisher's responsibility as anyone else.
2: What you're saying is right, and I think part of the problem is the publishers have put the burden on the creators to engage yeah. with the communities. So you know, Marvel, basically, it seems like Kelly Sue DeConnick was the engine of Carol Core. Um. You're talking about, you know, like virtual communities and social media. It's been my observation that a large demographic of social media managers are young women. Hmm. When you have companies run by old guys, are they thinking about young women? When you have companies run by old guys that historically have been managing toxic environments for women, how do you compel young women to come work for your organization? I have two suggestions right off the bat. Number one, how about dealing with the problems in your organization? And number two, how about getting some women at the top? Mm -hmm. How about the next Jeanette Kahn? How about the next Karen Berger? How about you don't fire, (laughs) you know, a a powerful woman in your organization? Yeah. So the viewpoint seems to be very myopic old boys network that's running comic books right now to a significant degree. I'd love to see some women from outside of comics in some power positions look at it with a fresh set of eyes. You know? So, Mm -hmm. you know, I think, speaking of what you were talking about, Brett, that the best ambassadors... To make that possible, we have to make an environment that welcomes those ambassadors Mm -hmm. because we need them. We need them because we don't understand what they understand. And instead of us saying, well, we don't understand it and we're getting by, so it's okay. Let's acknowledge that we don't get it and let's seek out the people that do get it and let's create an environment in which they can be nurtured instead of victimized.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it would uh, be nice to see. I, I, I think it will be a long time. I think, uh, unfortunately, it will probably have to be uh, a lot of the old boys' network literally dying out for that change to happen. I'm, I'm a little <coughs> cynical on that. Um,
2: or purged out
0: or purged out. Yes. There, that would be the other mm-hmm. would be is get to a point where things are so toxic and, or, uh, sales are so bad that their parent companies have no choice but to, uh, make some drastic changes. Um, I don't know. It'll, it'll be really interesting. I mean, the thing I, that still comes to my mind is the fact that we're talking about billion dollar uh, properties at this point and, and you know, no parent company wants to deal with something that's toxic uh, in the mass, um, you know, in the masses, so hopefully it won't come to that, but I, I'm a little cynical and feel like it probably will.
2: Well, you know, hope, hopefully the leaders in these power positions now will use their power and either singularly or join forces and and we can help inspire them, for lack of a better term at the moment, to alter the trajectory of this business.
0: If only there was a saying about power and responsibility in comics, I, I don't know. Someone should come up with it. I think so. I
2: think so. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go Google something about that and see what I come up with and let you know.
0: Uh-huh. So we've had you on for a hell of a long time. Uh, as much as I'm loving the discussion, uh, I don't want to keep you on uh, too much longer. Uh, hey, I've well, been
2: having all- it's, it's cool.
0: Cool. Uh, you. Yeah. No, I appreciate it. Uh, before we have people uh, let them go, we always want them to go and um, plug, you know, whatever they want to plug. You know, obviously we we talked about a, a comic to begin with, but uh, you know, your platform to get people to go out and and pre-order and purchase a certain comic. So go for it. And also, you know, plug how folks can follow you online and and connect with you.
2: Okay, I appreciate it. Um, My comic book resources column, The Mission, usually hits every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. I'm now writing Solar Man for Scout Comics. The first issue will be out on Wednesday, June 29th. You can find me on Facebook as Joe Illidge, I-L-L-I-D-G-E. You can find me on Twitter as Joseph P. Illidge. And I'm on social media quite a bit, probably slightly too much, and but I'm easy to find. Um, other than that, I would just like to take the opportunity to actually congratulate um, a friend of mine had some good news today. Brandon Easton has been announced as the writer of Mask mm-hmm. for IDW based upon the 80s cartoon, which if you grew up in the 80s, you've got space in your heart for stuff like Mask and Galaxy Rangers mm-hmm. and Bionic 6 and G.I. Joe and Transformers and all that stuff. So congratulations to him. And um, But that's it. So I'm pretty easy to find, and I'm always up for having... Good discussions, as long as they're mutually respectful.
0: <laughs> yeah, I uh, I can't wait for Mask. I I saw that now today, and I'm like, oh, this is gonna be so much fun. It's one of the properties I I absolutely loved growing up. I I couldn't even tell you why. Just for some reason, that was the one I I was all about. Um, oh yeah,
2: I'm I'm sold on it. It's gonna be it's gonna be a lot of fun. How about that
0: fun comics? I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. Well, thank you very much for uh, for joining us. I'm sure we will be inviting you again on uh, uh, the show, and you're, it's an open invitation, uh, as always. Thank you Good for you.
2: Thanks very much. I love I love your show, and you know, you and I, we you know did the panel last year at San Diego, so we all had friends. It was a pleasure meeting you, Alana, and talking with you, and you know, thank you
1: again for
2: running my column, and thank you for what you're doing.
0: I yeah, appreciate it. Thank you for writing the column and, and coming to yeah. us again. Yeah, like, thank you
1: for being uh, open about all this. Thank you.
2: You're welcome. You're welcome. So, have a good night.
0: Yeah, you, you do. Hopefully, hopefully we'll be able to have another panel at San Diego. I know there was a couple submitted, so cross my fingers. That, that would be great. <laughs> all right. Uh, great. All right. Well, let's we, talk to you all soon. Yeah, appreciate it. Hey, thanks again. Good night. Okay, you're welcome. Uh, well, yeah, so that was awesome, and I think a lot of truth and very interesting discussion. Um, so thank you, everyone, for for listening in and uh, joining in with us. And for uh, those who are listening and that came in late, you'll be able to listen to this on demand on uh, iTunes uh, and Stitcher you know, probably like an hour or so after this ends. P- please uh, feel free to, to share it around uh, with your friends. And then also, um, this will be downloaded and uploaded onto SoundCloud and posted on our site hopefully tomorrow, um, so you'll be able to listen it there uh, if you want to check it out again or share it around. But as always, thank you uh, very much for listening to us. So until uh, next time, I'm Brett. I'm Ilana. Keep it geeky.